0: been a good deal of my early life studying Mark Twain. Wrote my master's thesis on him and my dissertation, too. I, I have been several times to Vassar and Berkeley to examine select parts of the Twain papers there. It's always uniquely thrilling to hold pages that you know Twain himself held a century before. For a Twain scholar, it's equivalent to a religious experience, I'd say. And he wouldn't mind that metaphor. He referred to his first polished drafts as gospel-proof. I'm telling you all this to give you insight into how I came to love Joan of Arc. It was through Twain's admiration of her that I came to admire her as well. You see, Twain's favorite book was not Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer or Innocence Abroad. No. No. His favorite book was his last novel, Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. He said it took him 12 years of research and two years of writing to produce this biography of one of the greatest people who ever lived. So I read that book shortly before starting my dissertation, and his worship of her was contagious. I loved the book, but found it surprising— Twain was certainly anti-religious, and though not anti-Catholic per se, he often attacked the Church and the organized nature of most religious sects. He seemed most troubled, though, by the hypocrisy of organized religions and their leaders, and probably it was the hypocrisy of the leaders that troubled him most of all. And that may be why he was so taken with Joan of arc she did not twist her theology or abandon her faith to accommodate her earthly needs. She was faithful to her faith all the way into the fire that consumed her and made her a martyr. So after all these years, I thought I would do my own story of Joan by starting with Twain's introduction of her in the first pages of his favorite book. In fact, I'm going to cover Joan's life in three podcasts. First, will be this one in which Twain introduces her and tells us why she was, to his mind, the most special mere mortal mankind has ever produced. Second, I'll cover her childhood, her visions, and her life as a military commander and hero. How was she successful at defeating the Brits in battle after battle and sending them into full retreat? Indeed, she so weakened the British hold on France that she turned out to be the tipping point in the Hundred Years' War, which resulted in pushing England out of France altogether. The important question to answer is this, was she a military genius, a commander and tactician unequaled in her time, or was she mostly a mascot cheering on the troops Was she merely carrying out the strategies of experienced generals behind the scenes? In the third podcast in the series, I'll tell you how she was betrayed, how her trial was conducted, and how this illiterate girl held her own with studied clerics who sought her conviction for heresy at all costs. We'll try to fathom how she came to be burned alive and, though much too late, We'll see how her second trial, twenty years later, found her innocent, posthumously. But today, let's begin with Twain's account. He says, To arrive at a just estimate of a renowned man's character, one must judge it by the standards of his time, not ours. Judged by the standards of one century, the noblest characters of an earlier one lose much of their luster. Judged by the standards of today, there is probably no illustrious man of four or five centuries ago whose character could meet the test at all points. But the character of Joan of Arc is unique. It can be measured by the standards of all times without misgiving or apprehension as to the result. Judged by any of them, it is still flawless. It is still ideally perfect, it still occupies the loftiest place possible to human attainment, a loftier one than has been reached by any other mere mortal. When we reflect that her century was the brutalest, the wickedest, the rottenest in history since the darkest ages, we are lost in wonder at the miracle of such a product from such a soil. The contrast between her and her century is the contrast between day and night. She was truthful when lying was the common speech of men. She was honest when honesty was become a lost virtue. She was a keeper of promises when the keeping of a promise was expected of no one. She gave her great mind to great thoughts and great purposes when other great minds wasted themselves upon petty fancies or upon poor ambitions. She was modest and fine and delicate, when to be loud and coarse might be said to be universal. She was full of pity when a merciless cruelty was the rule. She was steadfast when stability was unknown, and honorable in an age which had forgotten what honor was. She was a rock of convictions in a time when men believed in nothing and scoffed at all things." She was unfailingly true to an age that was false to the core. She contained her personal dignity unimpaired in an age of fawnings and servilities. She was of a dauntless courage when hope and courage had perished in the hearts of her nation. She was spotlessly pure in mind and body when society in the highest places was foul in both. She was all these things, in an age when crime was the common business of lords and princes, and when the highest personages in Christendom were able to astonish even that infamous era and make it stand aghast at the spectacle of their atrocious lives black with unimaginable treacheries, butcheries, and bestialities. She was perhaps the only entirely unselfish person whose name has a place in profane history. No vestige or suggestion of self-seeking can be found in any word or deed of hers. When she had rescued her king from his vagabondage and set his crown upon his head, she was offered rewards and honors, but she refused them all, and would take nothing. All she would take for herself, if the king would grant it, was leave to go back to her village home, and tend her sheep again, and feel her mother's arms about her, and be her housemaid and her helper. The selfishness of this unspoiled general of victorious armies, companion of princes, an idol of an applauding and grateful nation, reached but that far, and no farther. The work wrought by Joan of Arc may fairly be regarded as ranking any recorded in history when one considers the conditions under which it was undertaken, the obstacles in the way, and the means at her disposal. Caesar carried conquest far, but he did it with the trained and confident veterans of Rome and was a trained soldier himself. And Napoleon swept away the disciplined armies of Europe, but he was also a trained soldier and he began his work with patriot battalions inflamed and inspired by the miracle-working new breath of liberty breathed upon them by the revolution, eager young apprentices to the splendid trade of war, not old and broken men-at-arms despairing survivors of an age-long accumulation of monotonous defeats, but Joan of Arc, a mere child in years, ignorant, unlettered, a poor village girl, unknown and without influence, found a great nation lying in chains, helpless and hopeless, under an alien domination, its treasury bankrupt, its soldiers disheartened and dispersed, all spirit torpid, all courage dead in the hearts of the people through long years of foreign and domestic outrage and oppression. Their king cowed, resigned to its fate, and preparing to fly the country. And she laid her hand upon this nation, this corpse, and it rose and followed her. She led it from victory to victory. She turned back the tide of the Hundred Years' War. She fatally crippled the English power and died with the earned title of Deliverer of France, which she bears to this day. And for all reward— The French king, whom she had crowned, stood supine and indifferent, while French priests took the noble child, the most innocent, the most lovely, the most adorable the ages have produced, and burned her alive at the stake. So that is Twain's introduction to his book, Joan of Arc. Next week, we will look at her childhood and her military campaigns.